Today we're, uh, we're bringing to a close a, uh, a series of messages that uh, Tyson has been dealing with the past several weeks on reaching out and evangelizing, sharing the gospel. After one of those sermons that Tyson gave, there was a man that said, man, we could, we could really use a, a lesson or a class on personal evangelism. Well, this is it. It's not the whole thing, but this is one of them. So we're going to be dealing with some, uh, some thoughts that help you in learning how to share the faith. So I want you to be thinking this today about the fact that, that there's coming into your life somebody you've been talking with and working with and praying with. They are a seeker, and they, they're going to ask that question, how do I become a Christian? What do I need to do to become a, a Christian? And we're going to answer those questions as they're asked. Back in April, Denny Grant and his brother David and I went down to Bennett Springs, Missouri. Uh, Denny said, I want to take you fly fishing. And I've never been fly fishing. I didn't know anything about it. If you know fly fishing, it's you put on these big waders and a kind of a funny hat. You've got a nine-foot rod, and you cast out in the water with all kinds of bait, things called woolly boogers and uh, uh, dry flies and nymphs and uh, copperheads, all those kind of things. I had a really great time. It was a lot of fun, my first uh, time doing this. And I really thought I, I did really pretty well. I brought back some, some great catches. Uh, uh, you know, there's, that was a hard one to pull in. Uh, this, the last one was the best. Man, I tell you, that really pulled that nine-foot rod getting that thing in. Denny did a good job as well. Uh, they weren't quite the same size, but uh, you know, they were good, and they put up a fight, and Denny really struggled to bring in this last one, but he got it in. He got it in, and, and I was really proud of him. No, it wasn't that way at all. I love the fact that Jesus calls us to fish, to fish. But he's not saying, come on and fish for trout and bass and bluegill and, and, and crappie, those kind of things. In the fourth chapter of Matthew, it says, One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter and Andrew. They were throwing their net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. They left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he he called them to come too, and they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Now, it makes sense when Jesus called these disciples to follow him to fish for people, and the first ones that he called was Peter, Andrew, James, and John because they fished for a living. So he said, I want you to stop fishing so you can start fishing. I want you to stop throwing nets out here for fish and start throwing nets out for people. I want to teach you how to bring people into a saving relationship with God the Father. Now, Tyson's messages that we've been hearing are talking about growing out by sharing the good news of Jesus, his salvation, his love, his mercy, his grace, all those things. And today I want to give you some tools to use so that you can also be able to do this relatively easily. Uh, You've heard of the Roman road. Well, what I'm going to give you is a Roman road that you can look at in Scripture and simply go down through these texts. And as you go down through these texts in Roman, you you can help a person see how to get from point A to point B, to a point of of asking the question, to the point of saying, why can't I be baptized into Jesus Christ? But before we open that toolbox, there are some things that you need to consider. Number one, how many non-Christian friends do you have? If the answer is zero, you're not going to be a very good fisherman because you don't have anybody to fish for you need to have people that you know, acquaintances. Maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a, a friend at school. It may be somebody in your family that is not a believer. 
And you need to have friends that aren't believers in order to be able to share the gospel with them. Number two, the person you're sharing with is not a project. Man, sometimes we get our sights fixed on somebody and say, man, I'm going I'm to pour myself into this person's life, and I'm going to love him, I'm going to teach him, I'm going to let him know about Christ, and they accept Jesus, and, and, and they're baptized into Christ, and they find a place in the pew, and say, now it's on to number two. And you go out and just leave this person sitting there by themselves. Man, you need to invest in their life totally, not just for that moment when they, when they say that they love Christ and they want to become a Christian, but you need to continue to love them and pour your life into them as well. These people are not a project. They're a person. Third thing is this. We share the good news with others because somebody shared it with us once, didn't they? Somebody told us about Christ. I mean, who were we before we were Christians? Paul describes us this way in Ephesians 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, all of us used to live that way. We follow the passionate desires and, and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject of God's anger. The NIV says that we were subjects, we were objects of God's wrath, like everyone else. Have you ever been the object of anybody's ire, their anger, their wrath? Man, it's not a good feeling. God is not angry at us, but he's angry at the sin that's a part of our life. That's what he's mad about. You see, our, our, our fallen nature tends to be the target of, of God's judgment. And I do not believe that sharing the good news of Jesus will become a priority unless we recognize and accept the truth of heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal punishment. Unless we believe in those things and we're concerned about them, we're, we're terrified of hell and we look forward to heaven, unless we believe any of that, we're not going to have any inclination, any motivation to share the good news at all. The fourth thing is this, universalism is not a biblical truth. I know people say, well, I don't believe the same way you do, and I don't go to church, I don't do all those things, but you know, God is a good God, and his son Jesus loves us, and, and that's all that really matters, right? God is love, and so the end, he's going to bring everybody in. Man, that sounds so inclusive, but the idea that there are many paths to heaven causes many to loosely handle sin as well as other core doctrines of the faith. All right, there's a phone number up on the screen. Somebody take out your phone and dial that number. I don't care. Everybody has a phone. Come on, you can do this. Just dial the phone number. 618-614-4002. Someone call that number. Now, please take that down quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my phone number. Yeah, thank you. Now, it's busy. I'm sorry. I'm not taking more calls. Uh, <clears throat> if you had called 618-614-4001, this happened in first service, too. I'm just going to shut the thing off. That's the only way I know how to get rid of it. I hate phones. If you called 618-614-4001, my phone won't ring. If you called 618-614-4003, my phone will not ring. If you dialed any other number than the one that was up on the screen, my phone will not ring. It doesn't make any difference how sincere you are, how much you love your phone, how much you love my phone, how accurate you think AT&T or Verizon is. None of those things make any difference. The only thing that matters is you have to dial the right number. No other number will work. 
Jesus basically said the same thing when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to my Father except through me. He said, I am 618-614-4002. You've got to dial that number. You have to believe in Jesus. Universalism isn't a biblical concept. It's a very, it's a very inclusive way, though, to come. Jesus said, this is how much God loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, will not be destroyed, but will have everlasting life. Everyone who accepts Christ receives that reward. Gary Johnson, who is the executive director of E2, Effective Elders, we had him here to speak a number of times, a great preacher, said, countless people are in need of Christ Countless people are in need of Christ, and Jesus is counting on countless Christians to reach those who are spiritually lost. We have been given a command, a mandate by Jesus Christ himself to go and make disciples of all nations. And that mandate will always be in effect. The question is, will we be effective in fulfilling that mandate? In your pew in front of you is a little card. I hope you saw this. Pull this out. You keep this. Put this in your Bible. And this is the Roman Road Toolbox. So this morning, imagine that here is a young person, older person. doesn't make any difference. This person says, hey, I've been coming to church. I've been worshiping with you. I've been hearing the messages. And, and I think I'm ready to take that step. I, I, I would like to know what do I need to do? What, what do I have to do to become a Christian? This is a seeker. So our seeker here today is wanting some answers to some questions. So as you begin to determine the readiness of this individual, we can go down through some scriptures. And if you just remember these, even put these in there, you can refer to those and have a conversation that would go something like this. You know, before, uh, uh, before you're baptized in Christ, before we do this, let's, let's talk about the Bible a little bit. And, and I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. These are the transitional questions you see. Number one, if you were to die tonight... God forbid, but if you were, would you go to heaven? The answers vary. I think so. I hope so. I don't know. No. And I want people to be honest because I want them to wrestle with the seriousness of those answers, the seriousness of that question. That leads to a transitional question number two. If you were to die tonight and you stood before the throne of God, what reasons would you give him to allow you into his heaven? Why would you say, God, I deserve to be here? Well, the answers also vary in that. People will say, well, uh, I, I went to church you know, a few times. I put some money in the offering. I, I helped a little old lady across the street. I've tried to be good. I've tried to be good. The Bible tells us, though, that being good is not good enough. Our, our best efforts will not guarantee your salvation. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many times you come to church, no matter how much you put in the offering, all those things, they just won't, won't stack up. But imagine it, doing it this way. Imagine you've got a piece of paper and you draw a line down the middle, and on one side I would write, these are the good things that D has done, and these are the bad things that D has done. And so I sit down and start writing up all the good things. Man, I gave mom a gift on Mother's Day, and, and I've been nice to people. I've tried to help a lot of folks. I write these things down. Uh, I've been a friend of Ben Allen because he really needs one, and I'd write that down. I, I took good care of my dog. Uh, uh, I, during, the, during my ministry, I helped build two church buildings. I, I'm writing Writing these good things down, but then there's the other side. There's the bad side. And I start writing things down there. Man, there are times I disobeyed mom and dad. Yeah, got to write that down. I've been accused of being a jerk, and I can't deny that, so I write that down. 
There have been times I've been selfish with my time and not given that time to my wife. I know I've got to write that down. I secretly fantasize about being taller than Tyson. Oh, yeah, I've got to write that down. I may have kicked a cat when I was frustrated. I don't know what side that goes on. Uh, sorry, all you cat lovers out there. I, I, I will repent later. Uh, it, it always comes back to bite me when I say that one. I I've taken credit in ministry for things that God has done and, and that I did not do, and certainly that should go on the bad side. Now, if you and I are honest, we know that we probably have more things written on the bad side than we do the good side. And so God asks the question, why should I let you in? Why should I let you into my heaven? And you then might say, well, God, here's my list. God, look, look at the good side. Look at all the great things I've done. And, and God said, yeah, that's really great. I'm really proud of you. But what about the other side of the paper? No, 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 wait a minute, God. Look over here again. Don't you remember when I was a Girl Scout and I sold, I sold all those thin mint cookies or, or, or I stopped and helped that guy fix his flat tire? These are really good things. God said, yeah, but look at the other side. It only takes one. It only takes one bad deed to keep you out of my heaven because heaven is a perfect place for perfected people what if we had spent all of our life all of our efforts all of our time trying to be good enough to get through those pearly gates but we missed it we missed the goodness mark now the wonderful news is our goodness is not the measuring stick god's goodness that's it. That's the only thing that matters. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to live a good life. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is this. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. His sufficient grace is greater than our insufficiencies. He has done what we cannot do. Praise God for that. So with our seeker, we've established the fact that no one is good enough to go to heaven. So that brings us to the next question, then, well, then who needs to be saved? Paul told the church in Rome, everybody. There is no difference, for all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We've all done that. The word sin comes from this little Greek word, hamartia, that means to miss the mark. Imagine the, the, the archer shooting the arrow across the field, and he misses the target. He misses the field. He misses everything. God has a design. God has a plan for us. God has a way that we'd like for us to live. And when we sin, we veer off of that path. We veer off of that, uh, that design for us, and we've sinned. We've disobeyed God's law. We've, we've done the wrong thing. We failed to do what God expects. We didn't do the right thing. James says, remember, it's a sin it is a sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. The Bible tells us that anything that we do that isn't propelled by our righteousness, by faith, can be sin. So there's no doubt in anybody's mind we're all sinners. I ask the question, how many murders does it take to make a person a murderer? Only one. Well, how many sins does it take to make a person a sinner? Only one. Have you ever sinned? Yes. Then we need to be saved. So I ask our, our um, seeker here, well, what are the consequences of sin? Well, we go to Romans 6, 23, and Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. Wages, that's not a word that we use a whole lot. Sometimes when I'm talking with children, they don't really understand the idea of wages. Wages is your paycheck. You go to work, at the end of two weeks or one week or a month, whatever it is, you get a paycheck. That's your wage. This is what you earn, you deserve. This is the consequences of the work that you've done. When we sin, the wages of sin is death. The, the, the result of wrong choices, bad decisions. The wages of sin is death. 
What is death? We understand that death is when the body stops working and our body dies. But death is also described in Scripture as being separated from God spiritually. So anybody walking around that doesn't know who Jesus is, who's not committed their life to Christ, is spiritually dead. If you don't do something about that spiritual deadness while we are physically, physically alive and then we die, then we are eternally dead. We are eternally separated from Jesus Christ, from God the Father. The wages of our sin, the result of our rebellion is death, physical, spiritual, and eternal. But Paul didn't stop there. He said, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, the justice of God demands punishment, but the love of God demands mercy. How do we harmonize these two realities? Paul said in Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die while we were still caught up in our rebellion, while we were still doing the wrong thing and not doing the right thing, while we were still disobeying God, Jesus Christ died for us. He took the punishment upon himself on the cross for us. You've seen this acrostic before. I think, I, I believe Tyson has used it before as well. God's riches at Christ's expense. What are the riches of God? This is a great thing to share with somebody you're talking to. The riches of God is heaven, eternal life, his mercy, grace, his love, his compassion, his salvation. Those are all the riches of God. How did they come to us? At the expense of Christ. What did Christ have to spend? He spent his life. He gave his life. He gave his life for us on the cross. It cost him his life for us to have eternal life. That's one really great way to show that. Write that down in the back of your card. God's riches at Christ's expense. But sometimes I like to be able to use an illustration that might be a little bit more personal. Brian Grove, he's on his way to St. Louis. He's got to get down there. He's in a hurry. He gets out on Interstate 70. The speed limit's 70, on 70. But Brian's in a hurry. He's doing 85. <laughs> he's, he's really in a hurry. So he's driving down the highway. Here comes one of Illinois' finest Red lights, pull him over. Mr. Grove, you were driving 85 in a 70-mile-an-hour speed zone. And there's a new law now that says because uh, you have been, you've been pulled over, then you have to pay the fine. It's $1,000 right now. Brian says, man, I, I don't have that kind of money. The policeman says, well, you're going to jail. Well, uh, Tyson is driving down the road, and Tyson recognizes Brian's car. Tyson pulls over and asks what's going on. Brian explains, and Tyson said, well, you know, I'm independently wealthy. So Tyson, he whips out the billfold, throws out uh, 10 big ones to the officer, and Brian goes scot-free. Now, who broke the law? You can say it. Brian, great. Who should have paid the fine? Right. Who paid the fine? Did he break the law? Was he obligated to pay the fine? Why did he do it? Because of love. Because of love. And he had the money. Yeah. Because of love. That's why Jesus did on the cross for us what we could not do for ourselves. It was that, it was that unconditional love of the Son of God that looked at us and said, there's no way that you can do enough to earn salvation. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to, I'm going to span that gap between you and the Father, and I'll die on the cross, and I'll pay the price, I'll pay the penalty, I'll pay the fine that you can't pay, so that eternal life can be lived. Man, what a gift. What a gift. Has the law been satisfied? Yes. Has mercy been shown? Yes. The death of Jesus on the cross satisfied both. 
Now, we're talking with a seeker, and the, the statement can be made that Jesus died to give us eternal life with him in heaven, and he gave us this promise as a gift. Well, what do you have to do to receive the gift? Here's a nice box all wrapped up in pretty paper with a nice bow, and I'm handing it to you, handing it to our seeker here. Say, so here's a gift. What do you have to do to get it? Well, do I have to run around the house? No. Do I have to do push-ups? No. Do I have to give you money? No. What do you have to do to receive the gift? Take it? Exactly. It's a free gift. It's a gift to you. The Bible says it's by grace you have been saved through faith. It doesn't come from us. It's not from ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that anyone can boast, for we are God's workmanship. God has created us in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Well, so here's the gift. How do you accept it? Paul told the church in Rome to do this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. When we hear the, we hear the word confess, we think of law and order. Okay, you've got to confess to the crime. That's not what the word means here. The word confess means to speak in agreement with something that's been said. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is our great confession. That is our commitment that we make. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is. So we confess that to be true. And then we believe in our hearts, he said. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. We begin with belief. But belief must result in trust in Jesus and a changed, changed life that's illustrated by repentance and baptism. How do, you, how do you illustrate a changed life? How do you illustrate an action? I believe that that seat will hold me up. And you can all say, fine, prove it. So if I go down the steps and sit on the seat, I have proven that that seat will hold me up. You see, we illustrate our belief by an action. That's what happens when we're baptized into Christ. That's not all that it means, but that's partly what it means. We're told to be baptized in Mark 16, 16, Acts 2, 38, Romans 6, 1 through 6, and uh, uh, 1 Peter 3, 21. And those are just a few of the verses we have. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached this great sermon to the crowd. And he said, this same Jesus that you have crucified is now both Lord and God, Lord and Savior. Yet you crucified him. The people in the crowd it said they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were convicted by the message, and they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, You repent and be immersed into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't say, Raise your hand. He didn't say, Say this prayer. That's not what he said. He said, Repent. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 says that we are baptized into his death. The word into denotes ownership. We're baptized literally into the ownership of Christ. In Romans 6, 4, it says, Christ was raised from the dead. Our immersion is this beautiful picture of, being, of, of dying to our sin and being raised once again. Down in Anna at the church where I preached there, we had a portable baptistry. The new building we built didn't have a built-in baptistry, so we had a portable one that was both our communion table and the baptistry. We'd take the top off. It was filled with water. And when a person got into the baptistry and was baptized and came out, we had this beautiful, heavy, uh, cotton white robe that we had taken from Holiday Inn. No, no, we didn't, we didn't get it there. Uh, we actually bought this. And we used that to wrap the person up in this robe. And it was such a marvelous picture. This person had been baptized. They had been raised in a new life. And now they stepped outside and they're wrapped in this white, pure robe. And this picture of purity is just, was so beautifully seen. In Romans 6, 5, it says, we have died to sin. The old is gone. The new has come, Paul tells us. 
Now, when we get into a discussion or we're talking about baptism, there are questions that come up. And it happens to me all the time. It happens to Tyson. Anybody else that's gone through the Roman road will, will have some questions that we answer. And so we answer those. A person will ask, maybe ask a question, well, why do you, why do you people immerse instead of, of just you know, pouring some water or sprinkling doing that? Because that's what the Bible says to do. The, the, the word baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo. The Greeks would give, a, give a, a, a word according to sometimes a sound that it made. And so when something went under the water, they would call that bap. Baptizo meant to plunge, dip, pour. It's the word they use for dyeing a piece of cloth. And so the Bible says when a person comes to Christ, they are immersed. The word baptizo is only translated to the English word immerse. There's no other word. Matter of fact, baptism or baptize is not even. It's, it's a transliteration of the Greek word. So we do what the, the, the word says to do. Somebody will say, I was baptized as a baby. Do I need to be baptized again? If you were sprinkled as a, an infant, as a child, as a baby, that was a, a way of mom and dad dedicating you. It was a very special time for them, a, a very special time for you. But, but I want you to consider two, two points. One, infant baptism is never, is never seen, displayed, or talked about, or taught in the Scripture. We, we don't see an example of it anywhere. And number two, in the Bible, baptism is always a response to hearing and believing the word. Immersion always follows somebody's choice, somebody's decision to surrender to Christ. A baby can't make that decision. A baby has no ability to decide by faith what they will do or not do. Somebody may ask the question, well, do I have to be baptized to be saved? You know what? That's a question the New Testament never asks. It just assumes that you will. It assumes that because it was taught that you will follow that and you'll be obedient to that. When, when Apollos was preaching about Jesus, he only knew of, Peter, of, of John's baptism for repentance. He didn't know of, of Jesus' baptism. And so one day Aquila and Priscilla hear Apollos preach, and they kind of take him aside and say, Hey, it was a great sermon. You did a great job. But do you not know about the baptism into Jesus Christ for salvation? No, I, I don't know about that. And it says in some translations they taught him the more excellent way. And so he followed through with that. You see, baptism by itself doesn't save you. But the Bible does teach that immersion, when it's preceded by belief and by repentance and by confession, plays a critical role and essential part in our salvation. Now, God can do whatever God wants to do. I mean, he can do that. But when we know what the Bible teaches about this, why would we not want to do what the Bible says specifically? Peter writes, this water, this, this water symbolizes baptism now, that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. The, the, the cleaning up of our mind. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's gone into heaven at the right hand of God. With angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. And we submit to Christ when we're baptized into him. Somebody might ask, do you have to be immersed again? to belong to Greenville First Christian Church? Well, let me ask you, were you baptized into the church? No, you were baptized into Christ. So if you've been immersed once and you understand what that means, that's all that we ask. That's all that you have to do. A.W. Tozer wrote, it is altogether doubtful whether any man can be saved who comes to Christ for his help with no intention to obey him. 
This past Easter, our kids and grandkids were here, and my youngest grandson, Ezra, said, said, Papa, uh, I, I want to be baptized. And they'll do this at some date, a little bit later on when they back in D.C. I said, man, that's great, Ezra. I'm, I'm so happy for you. Let's talk about that. So we sat down. I want to ask him a question or two and see if he understood things. I said, can you exegete Romans 8? He didn't do that. <clears throat> And I asked him questions, and he gave some really great answers. But the first thing I asked Ezra was, Ezra, why? Why do you want to be baptized? He said, because I love God. Yes. That's where it starts. That's where it starts. But that's not where it ends. That's not where it, that's not where it concludes. Every morning when I get up, before I come to the office, I'll be eating my breakfast, and I'll open up the laptop or the computer, and I'll look at, uh, look at the obits that are there on WGEL. I want to see if my name is there. So far, it has not been. But I'd like to, like to read to see if there's anybody there that, that's a part of the church family or related to some, so we'll know what's going on. And, and, uh, and when I'm reading through the obits, it's always interesting to read about accomplishments and places they've gone, things they've done, what they did in life, and who they were related to. You know, all, all those facts and details about a person who's lived and a person who's died. I read one that said that this, this person, and some of these, most of these are not even from, from town. They're out of the area. I, I love spending time with his, he loved spending time with his wife and traveling and tinkering with and riding motorcycles. He, he never met a stranger and was always the first to offer a helping hand. He was a former member of the Masonic Lodge. Another obit read, he took great pride in his yard and keeping it immaculate. He loved to fish. Play darts with his children and golf every chance he got. I ran across one the other day in the St. Louis Post I, I found interesting. It said this man was known throughout his life as a genuinely nice guy. He swam for the Missouri Athletic Club, the St. Louis University High and, and the Navy. He also obtained his pilot's license and once landed at Lambert Field. It said that he somehow squeezed in golf time and took pride in having hit three holes in one. Cool. In each one of those obits, there is something glaringly absent. No mention of or no affiliation with any type of church. And that doesn't mean, just because it's not in print, it doesn't mean the person did not have that. But I've always found, generally, that a person who truly loved Jesus, truly committed to walking with Christ, that somewhere in that line of information, that's going to be said. I told First Service that some months ago, Guyanetta Wright met with Tyson and I and talking about her funeral service, which we hope is no time soon. But she said, this is what I want. I want you to say that Guyanetta Wright lived and died, and she loved Jesus. And the rest of the time, talk about Jesus. Yeah, yeah. When they sit down to write out our obit, what will it say? And as I speak to my seeker friend, what do you want yours to say? That you were a great golfer? You were good to your kids? You held positions in government or the school? Nothing wrong with any of those things. But when it's all said and done, what will really matter? Do you know Jesus? Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, ask the question, 
Is our name going to be written in the Lamb's book of life? This morning, we talked about the conversation through the Roman road that you can have with a seeker. But possibly today, you're seeking. And you may be one of those individuals that is now confronted with the question, what will you do with what you know? What will you do with Jesus? Will you walk out the doors and think, well, I'll have an opportunity in the future? Or will you say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. I, I want him as my Lord and Savior. Let that be known. Complete that obedience and baptism, then walk, walk a life with Christ. If you need to make that choice, please come. Tyson's here, I'm here. Be willing to take that confession of faith. The, the baptistry is ready to go. Would you stand? Heavenly Father, this morning as we contemplate not only our role and our work in sharing the good news, but Father, also the results of that, Help us to be sympathetic to those that have questions, to answer as best we can. But Father, most of all, to point them to Jesus. Not any number of things that we say to do, but Father, mostly to point them to you, the, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the giver of our salvation, the one who's made it possible for us to spend eternity with you and your Father in heaven, not by anything that we have done, Father, but purely by what you have done through grace. And Father, this morning, if there's someone wrestling with that very, very issue, that very position, I pray they would surrender their life to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.